Hello, my name is Elena. Welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission, to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. Hello, everyone. My name is Joel, and I want to invite everyone watching, whether you're new or you've been with Love Chapel Hill for a long time, uh, we would love for you to join our Sunday morning watch party. So it is every Sunday at 10 o'clock. You can find all the Zoom information on the website, lovechapelhill.com. But let me tell you that this is why you have to come. This is where you get to see everybody, right? So this is the opportunity. If you want to see who is a part of Love Chapel Hill or you want to see some old friends, come and we will watch the service video together. This very video you're watching right now and uh, we'll have opportunity to meet some new people, see some old friends. But we would love for you to come join us every Sunday for a Sunday morning watch party at 10 a.m. Go to lovechapelhill.com, find the information, and we hope to see you there. Hey everyone, my name is Natalie Davis, and I'm so glad you're joining us for our worship service today. Are you looking for ways to connect with others or get involved in the church community? I would love to invite you to the church website, lovechapelhill.com, where you can find several ways to connect and serve right on the front page of the website. There are many ways you can connect with others, such as Bible study groups, prayer groups, or discipleship bands, just to name a few. And you can also check out the various opportunities we have to serve those in our church and in the Chapel Hill community. Also, if you're worshiping with us for the first time this morning, or consider yourself new to the church, we are so happy you're joining us. We would love for you to fill out a Connect card to share with us more about yourself and to connect with the leaders of the church. You can find that Connect card in the comments on either the Facebook or YouTube video you're watching now. Thanks, and enjoy your Sunday. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I lead the College Women's Bible Study. We would like to invite you to a trivia and game night next Sunday, March 14th at 7 p.m. We are looking to connect with other people in the church, get to meet other groups, other small groups, just anyone who's attending love virtually during this time, and we just want to have a good time. So please invite anyone you know who might be interested, roommates, friends, um, yeah, just anyone who you think would love to do trivia and games. If you have any questions, you can email joel at lovechapelhill.com and look out in your um, weekly emails for the link to join us. So we hope to see you there. Thanks. Bye.
rushing wind Would you breathe within my heart And through the raging storm Would you hold me in your arms
take me over, Jesus, draw me closer to your heart. Today is the third Sunday of Lent, which is this 40-day season uh, that the church through the centuries and around the world observes together, uh, marking the journey with Jesus towards the cross. Uh, this is the 40 days that leads up to the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And during this season, the church historically uh, engages the heart, mind, soul, and even the body with this journey with Jesus towards the cross. As we keep going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew together, as we walk through this next section of Matthew in chapter 9, uh, you're going to see the cross coming more and more into view on a couple of layers. For one, you're going to see the opposition begin to rise against Jesus, uh, especially of the religious establishment uh, the, the pushback um, and the intensity of that opposition to Jesus, you're going to see that increase in this chapter. But also you're going to see the mission of the cross come more and more into view. You're going to see the power of the cross and this mission of Jesus to forgive sins. Uh, to bring us into reconciled relationship with God. And you are going to be amazed as, as Matthew describes just how far the grace of Jesus through the cross of Jesus that is coming uh, is able to reach. And so let's dive in together. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, Get up and walk? but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to a person. So as we move into chapter nine, you continue to see this theme of the authority of Jesus. It's this repeated theme throughout the gospel of Matthew, and it just keeps building here in this chapter as well. And this time, the authority isn't just in Jesus's ability to heal the sick, but it's in his ability and his power and this claim that he makes to be able to forgive sins. You see the reaction of the teachers of the law, the religious elite, the religious establishment, uh, and the way that they are deeply offended by this claim. Somehow they are more offended that Jesus can claim to forgive sins than they are amazed that Jesus is able to heal this man 
who could not walk. They are more offended that Jesus has taken this lens through which they see and understand God and has, has begun to expand that and stretch that out. They're more offended about the stretching of that lens than they are about this man being able to stretch out his legs and stand up and walk, carrying his own mat and walking back home. You see in this, um, this, this pride and this, this, the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their eyes because of this spiritual pride that they have. I love the fact, and it's really important for us to grasp, I love the fact that Jesus begins here by saying to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Is that why they brought the man to Jesus? No. That's not why the friends brought the man to Jesus. They brought the man to Jesus because they believed that Jesus could heal him. But Jesus goes further than that. And he begins at this place of speaking forgiveness over sin, forgiveness of his sins and bringing him into this reconciled relationship with God. Why does Jesus begin there? Why why doesn't he go just straight to the issue that they have brought the man about and, and, and heal him. He starts with forgiving sins for a couple of reasons. One, because this is the ultimate mission of Jesus. This is what he has come to do. And over and over again, we talk about this, whenever you see a miracle of Jesus in any of the gospels, um, it's never just about that miracle. It's never just about the power that Jesus displays in that moment. Always the miracles of Jesus are pointing to two things, the mission of Jesus and the identity of Jesus. And we see that again here. He has the authority to forgive sins, pointing to his identity as the son of God, as God in the flesh, as the one who has the power to forgive sins. And this points back to that authority. The fact that he can heal the man gives evidence to the authority of the claim that he's already made that he could forgive Sins. It also points to his mission that this is why he came. He came to bring redemption. And as we move closer and closer to the cross, as the cross comes into view, we see that Jesus has come to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin, to overcome sin, to bring us forgiveness of sin through the spilling of his blood, that we are covered and we are made new. And we are brought into relationship with God through the grace of Jesus Christ. So he begins here because that's his real mission. That is why he has come. The second reason that Jesus begins here uh, with forgiving the sin before he heals the man is this is a direct rejection of this karma-esque cycle of curse way of thinking uh, in the culture at the time, especially connected uh, to religious belief and religious thought. And and the thought in the culture at the time was anytime you saw someone experiencing any kind of sickness or any kind of suffering, you could draw a direct line to some type of sin in that person's life that invited that suffering that brought that suffering on as some kind of punishment or divine retribution for sin. And Jesus flat out rejects that. He calls that what it is. 
He cuts through the abusive way of thinking that comes with that. And he speaks directly to this man and he begins by forgiving sin. He begins by forgiving his sin before the man is healed of this. And so in doing that, Jesus is breaking that cycle. Jesus is cutting through that way of thinking. If your theology forces you to draw a direct line between a single person's sickness and that person's sin that they committed to bring that on them, then what do you make of Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus that Matthew has already told us, referring back to Isaiah 53, that this is the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about? What do you make of Jesus going to the cross? What do you make of the suffering that Jesus goes through? Was that his sin that brought that upon himself? Of course not. Of course not. We know that Jesus was sinless. That is Orthodox Christian belief. We do believe, however, that Jesus intentionally enters into our suffering, that he bears that suffering with us and for us. And in that, he brings us redemption through his suffering. The life of Jesus shows us and Christian theology teaches us that suffering is connected to sin, but it's not just in a karma kind of way. I sin, therefore I suffer. Instead, it draws the line all the way back to the moment when sin first enters the picture. That because of uh, Adam and Eve and the sin in the garden, because of this fallen nature of the world and the world, all of creation uh, being dragged down with us in that brokenness and in that fallenness, we draw the line all the way back to there. And so, yes, there is suffering in the world. It is all around us. It is a result of the fall. And we still live in that brokenness. And every one of us experiences the sharp edges of that brokenness. Jesus intentionally steps into this creation to heal that. And so he speaks to this man and he does make a connection to sin, but it's not that this man's sin has caused his situation. Instead, he looks all the way to the root and he says, I have come to heal the root problem that humanity has been suffering from. I have come to heal and to overcome sin and to bring us into a healed relationship with God. So Jesus rejects the oppressive theology placed on this man. And instead, he addresses the larger picture for all of us. And he lets us know that his mission is that he has come to heal the world, to heal all of us of the brokenness of the world, to forgive the sin that all of us share, the shared sickness that we all have in common. And Jesus has come to heal us of that. Of course, this statement that Jesus makes brings about opposition. It invites opposition from the religious elite. And here we're going to see it start to rise and we're going to see it continue throughout this chapter. It spills over into what happens next. 
uh, in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, we get the calling of Matthew, the tax collector, and then the feast that results after Matthew's calling. Let's read that passage together. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, we have another picture of the scandalous grace of Jesus, this radical love of Jesus that we see on display. Um, many of you would be familiar with the fact that a tax collector uh, in this day and time would have been a hated, reviled person, an outcast in society. Uh, the, the reason for that is this, and the, the connection to that is the fact uh, that the Roman Empire has conquered the Jewish people um, and their reign over that Jewish land is an oppressive kind of reign. Uh, part of that oppression um, and, and the weight of it comes through this heavy taxation that they are putting on the people. Uh, and this forced taxation on them. Um, it's bad enough that Rome has conquered them and that they are forced to pay money to their conquerors and to their oppressors. But it takes on a different layer because many of the tax collectors of that day and time would have been Jewish people who made a calculation. They recognized they had been conquered and there was money to be made. There was a fortune to be made by teaming up with Rome and collecting the taxes for Rome and paying them back. Uh, there are tax collectors. Sometimes they get called tax, tax farmers. Um, and, and there's this system where they, they bid to become the tax collector. They pay Rome to become the tax collector for that region because they know uh, what kind of financial opportunity there is in that. And so they collect the taxes that Rome requires. But on top of that, uh, they're extending that price and they are getting rich over what they are taking uh, off of the top of that. And so Matthew is one of these people. He has sold out his own people in order to become wealthy, in order to gain wealth. Matthew has made a calculation. He has weighed it out. He recognizes that there is much to gain in the financial wealth, but he also knows that there's much to lose, that he's going to be rejected by his own community, that he is going to be seen uh, as rejected by God by doing this. He makes that calculation, he weighs it out, and he decides it is worth it to him. And Matthew becomes wealthy because of that. There is much to gain, but he also knows that there is much to lose. And he has experienced that loss. Somewhere along the line for Matthew, he comes to the realization that for all of his wealth, 
he is still experiencing a poverty of the soul. And he experiences the weight of what he has lost. And he recognizes that he is a person, even though it seems that he has all of his needs met, it seems to be that he's a self-sufficient person, that he's pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He still comes to the realization that at the depths of who he is, he is a person in desperate need. And he has this encounter with Jesus and it changes everything for him. There's another calculation that he makes. Once again, faced with this wager, what does he have to gain? What does he have to lose? We know that what he has to lose is quite a bit, all of his wealth. And yet he weighs it and he makes that decision. He makes that choice and he makes that exchange. He of all people understands how the ledger works. He of all people understands the scale of the the cost versus the benefit here. And weighing that all out, he pushes back from the table and he gets up and he begins to follow Jesus. This invitation that he did not think was possible for him, that he had been rejected, not just by his people, but by God in the minds of his people. He abandons his post. He abandons everything. He exchanges the empire of Rome for the kingdom of heaven, the service to Caesar for discipleship to Jesus. He walks away from his livelihood and into life. And this person who's the picture of what it means to be hated and reviled is now embraced by love himself. As he gets up from that table and he leaves that life behind, it looks as if to us when we first read it, like he leaves everything. But Christian tradition teaches us that Matthew didn't leave it all behind. There's something he did take with him. He took his pen and he took his intellect and what had once been used for the power of building the Roman Empire and oppressing God's people is now used to bring freedom to people all over the world, telling the story of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. Christian tradition teaches us that Matthew, this Matthew, this tax collector is the one who goes on to write this gospel of Matthew and tell us this beautiful story of Jesus. It was beloved by the early generations of the church. Many believe that's why it's placed first uh, in the list of the four gospels opening up the New Testament because it was such a beloved gospel story of the life of Jesus. It has gone on to transform so many people through telling the good news of Jesus and the kingdom that he came to bring. That's not the only thing that he brought with him. He also brought his experience of knowing what it was like to be rejected and then to be embraced and to be given a seat at the table with Jesus. And he also brings one other thing. He brings a web of relationships that end up forming a guest list for the kind of party that Jesus loves to throw. A feast for people who don't get invited to feasts. A long list of lasts who somehow become first in this beautifully backwards reality called the kingdom of heaven. 
But of course, not everyone is able to understand what Jesus is up to in this calling of Matthew and in this meal that he has with the tax collectors and sinners in celebration of that. Once again, we see the opposition of the teachers of the law, the religious elite and the Pharisees. They come to Jesus and they begin to press back against what he is doing. They cannot get their minds around it. They cannot comprehend what he is doing. And in fact, they see it not as opening up the kingdom of heaven, but as a violation against God himself. Imagine being so confident in your understanding of God that you lose all capacity to be surprised by God. Lord, have mercy and don't let that happen to us. Imagine being so confident in your understanding of God that your mind about God cannot be changed, not even by God himself. Imagine being so confident in your understanding of God that when God speaks mercy, you cry blasphemy and you accuse him of lying. This is what's happening with the Pharisees. I have compassion for the Pharisees when I read about them because I realize uh, the amount of work that it took to get to where they are, the amount of lifelong sacrificial dedication to God that brought them to this point. They love his word. They love God's word. They want more than anything else to live in a way that is faithful to God's word. They have a radical trust in God's word. And somewhere along the line, though, it gets twisted. And somehow they have so much reverence for God that they find themselves opposing what God is up to and standing on his word and standing against him at the same time. Now, does Jesus reject God's word in this moment? This is is what they're accusing him of. Is he rejecting God's word? Of course not. We know that that's not true. He's upholding God's word because he fulfills God's word. He is God's word in the flesh. John calls him the word made flesh. And Jesus is the one who reveals the meaning of the word and helps us understand what it means. He intentionally in this moment when he's challenged, he intentionally appeals to the Holy Spirit inspired authority of the scriptures by quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea with this quote saying, go and learn what this means. I find that interesting because the Pharisees often refer to Jesus as a teacher and he gives them a lesson and he says, okay, here's your lesson. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They were experts at the sacrifice, but somewhere along the line, they had completely missed the mercy. And when they see the mercy play out, they they see it as a violation of God's heart. Jesus reveals the flaw here. It's not that they love the word. That is beautiful. The flaw is that they love their own understanding of God's word and their interpretation of it. It's not that they claim that the word of God is the authority. That's not what Jesus is critiquing here. It is, it is the authority. But he says, the problem here is that you have seen yourself as the authority over God's word. And you claim your interpretation of it 
as the authority here, right in front of them. They have the word made flesh, teaching them the meaning of it, but they prefer to cling to their own understanding. Contrary to what the word says in Proverbs, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They're doing the opposite. They're leaning on their own understanding. They refuse to acknowledge God in the flesh right in front of them. And in this moment, a divergent path begins and they take their first steps down this diverging path and walking out of the way of Jesus, walking out of step with the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 9 ends in the same way that it begins. It begins with this story of a group of friends who bring their friend to Jesus. And it says that when Jesus saw their faith, he was moved by it. Um, their faith. They were a part of this. They were included. You see this circle of engagement growing. And then the chapter ends with Jesus saying, pray for workers of the harvest to be sent out, that the harvest is plentiful, that the harvest is ready. Pray for workers to be sent into the harvest. And then in the following chapter, those disciples are the ones who are sent. They become the answer to that prayer. And Jesus sends them out into the harvest field. And you get this sense that the circle of engagement is growing, that we are being brought into this, that we are being sent out, that we are being empowered to explore the edges of the kingdom, to bring people to Jesus who need to experience Jesus, to be sent out by Jesus into the harvest. Too often redemption is seen as this closed loop, as this walled in city that Jesus is on the inside. And there's this wall blocking sinners and keeping sinners on the outside and drawing this line of who is in and who is out. But redemption is not this image of a closed loop. Instead, it is like an expanding wave. Like Jesus is the rock that is thrown into the pond. And then you get that ripple effect of redemption. And Jesus tells us that we are the edge of that expanding wave, that we are Matthew. We've walked away from an old life. We're following Jesus with all that we have, but he wants us to bring our list with us. He's throwing a party and he wants us to help shape the guest list, the table is ready. And he's saying to us, this is not a closed loop. This is not a calm lake. Jesus is the rock in the lake. And now the ripple effect of redemption is going out and you are the edge of that expanding wave of grace. I'm standing on You're more real than The wind in my lungs Thoughts define me 
you're inside me you are my reality you are my reality Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. You're closer than the on my bones You're closer than the song on my tongue Your thoughts define me You're inside me Jesus Abba I belong to you Abba I belong to you belong to you God I belong to you Lord God I belong to you I give you my heart Lord I belong to you and I I belong to you Oh Jesus Abba I belong to you Oh Jesus I am yours And you are mine I am yours and you are mine and 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 I am yours God, I belong to you.
everyone, my name is Valerie, and I hope you have enjoyed watching church this week. I know many of us are probably receiving a lot of notifications about photo memories or social media memories of a year ago, which was probably the last time we went to a concert or were in a big group gathering, or maybe even the last time we were in an office for work. And this weekend marks one year since we have been all together in the varsity, which is a surprising length of time that it's already been one year. And I think it's worth noting that it's been a year since we've been together. I think reflection is helpful to learn and to remember and to be able to move forward with what's next for us. I would encourage you to spend a moment to think about the last year and what you've learned, maybe about yourself or your faith or your church, and think about what you want to bring with you into this next year based on what you've learned. What are things that you want to keep with you as we move forward together? One thing that has been really helpful for me to think about is that Love Chapel Hill is still Love Chapel Hill, even though we haven't been together in person for a year. And hopefully you can spend a moment or two to think about ways that you're still seeing how we are loving our community with the heart of Jesus, uh, because it's been really helpful to remember that we don't only have to be here together on Sundays to be a church and that Jesus is still working in our community and in each of us without that weekly gathering. Mm -hmm.